According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me once again in the book of Proverbs. This is our Proverbs hour. We are in Proverbs 28, about halfway through the chapter, I think, getting ready for uh, once we finish up 28 and 29, we will be done with the Solomon portion of Proverbs, and then we get chapter 30 and 31 to uh, to conclude our series. So looking forward to that. I know the ladies have been waiting patiently for nearly 10 years now to get to the Proverbs 31 material that uh, they've been excited about since we started Proverbs. But, you know, it just takes you a bit to get there when uh, when you're doing it like we're doing it. All right, Proverbs 28:15. like a roaring lion and a rushing bear is a wicked ruler over a poor people. A leader who is a great oppressor lacks understanding, but he who hates unjust gain will prolong his days. And so we get a couple of verses here with verses 15 and 16 dealing with uh, wicked and oppressive authority. And uh, for some reason, uh, that seems to resonate with uh, believers today, at least with respect to the United States and circumstances we might be dealing with uh, at different levels, national, state, and local. So uh, it's important that we have the divine viewpoint. What are we supposed to do? When we, uh, when we are functioning under uh, oppression. All right, God is spirit. He must be worshipped in spirit and in truth. In preparation for our study this morning, let's take a moment of silent prayer, confessing any sins that need to be dealt with, and then humbling your heart for the authority of Bible doctrine. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do come before you this morning thankful for grace and truth, rejoicing in your faithfulness day by day and moment by moment. Father, I thank you for the living and abiding word of God that is uh, so alive and powerful and so applicable as we study to show ourselves approved. We ask for your blessing on our study. Father, open our eyes to see um, different realms of application based upon what your word is expecting of us. We thank you, Father, and we praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, so we've actually done the bulk of these verses already. Last week, I think we taught uh, the, the issues related to the lion and the bear and the imagery there, uh, connecting it with David and his uh, testimony, dealing with both lions and bears as a shepherd, dealing with uh, those issues there and protecting the flock. That lion and bear savagery, though, is, is used specifically to show you how destructive it is uh, on a population, on a, on a people group, when the government that's over them is so dysfunctional. This is a, a foundational issue with the laws of divine establishment. At every level, uh, you got volition, marriage, family, nationalism, and at every point where you have uh, rebellion, uh, that, where you're supposed to have shepherding and you're supposed to have provision and protection and appropriate servant leadership, if that blows up, then you end up with chaos and you end up with the, the ramifications then that destroys a marriage, destroys a family, destroys a nation. And so this metaphor is not accidental. The lion and the bear metaphor is very uh, appropriate. The roaring lion and the rushing bear. That's a wicked ruler over a poor people. Uh, the oppressor, is that why he's there? Did God put him in office so that he could get rich, so that he could oppress the people, so that he could be uh, personally benefited uh, by virtue of the suffering population? Of course not. That's not the design of any level of leadership. The husband in his marriage, if, that's, if he's just doing it for what he gets out of it, what's he... How is he blessing his wife or his children or his nation? And you understand at every level here, this is uh, what we're looking at. He who hates unjust gain 
will prolong his days. And it's that last phrase there, as we ran out of time, we didn't quite get to the, uh, to the language there, the language of hatred. Okay? It is a legitimate application of hatred. Now, sometimes the Bible does use love and hate as a, as a, uh, a language of extreme to show the, the, uh, the pinnacle of, of where you take it. Uh, but this is what it's about. Are you, are you craving it for the money, or do you actually hate the idea that that, uh, that unjust gain is available to you, right? That's, uh, that becomes a, an, an application then of, of, of humility for the leader to ask himself, it, why is he doing this? Is he doing it for the money, or is he doing it as unto the Lord? Does he realize that he's in the office he's in because the God of grace has put him there, and these are the expectations? Um, so... As we get to this, and I think we've already done these verses. We did the lack of understanding already. The issue here, um, because he lacks understanding, he doesn't have the right application. I think we looked at all these. Proverbs uses the, the bean and the banah terminology extensively as it relates to not only wisdom, acquire wisdom, but with your wisdom also, acquire understanding. And, and that's the, the extra step that if you fail to make that extra step, you end up with a perverted wisdom. Or like Satan did, where he corrupted his wisdom by reason of his splendor. And so I think this is uh, important. And so with these verses here, just a couple, and I know we may have hit them already last week as well, but trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. So while you're walking by faith, you want to recognize that the understanding of him is, uh, is what takes us forward. Verse 13. Happy is the man who finds wisdom and the man who gains understanding. For her profit is better than the profit of silver and her gain better than fine gold. And so you have a biblical perspective on wealth, on spiritual wealth, on temporal wealth. You're not going to be seduced by the temporal wealth uh, so that you will uh, manipulate people and you'll victimize people so as to advance your own portfolio and, uh, and the issues there. Likewise, verse 19 the Lord by wisdom founded the earth, and by understanding he established the heavens. So again, you have that tandem between wisdom and understanding, and both were at work in the role of creation. We understand God the Son is the creator. He created all things according to the Father's will, according to the Father's blueprints. The Son is himself also called wisdom. That's one of his titles. And so you can say, okay... God the Father, by uh, assigning, delegating to God the Son, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, founded the earth. But then you also have the tandem of understanding that goes, that's linked to wisdom in so many ways. Uh, you get down into chapter 4, verses 5 and 7. Acquire wisdom, acquire understanding. Do not forget nor turn away from the words of my mouth. And so this is a lifelong process. This is not just something that you do and say, okay, I've got that, and then you can be done and just uh, you know, rest and coast and, and just uh, try to make do based upon the wisdom and the understanding that you acquired back in the day. <laughs> no, because uh, you know, we talk about other things like perishable skills and ways, things that will fade, things that will diminish if you're not constantly reinforcing them. And, uh, and this is the nature of doctrine, uh, the nature of how we study, how we build line upon line, precept upon precept. And if you're not advancing in your growth, then I believe you're actually retrograde, you're going back. And, yeah, and you can lose a maturity status that you maybe had previously because um, you have failed to, uh, to continue in that endeavor. 
Verse 7 says, The beginning of wisdom is acquire wisdom, and with all you're acquiring, acquire understanding. It's the same word there. I don't know why they switch from acquire to get, but in any event, in all you're acquiring, get understanding. Prize her and she will exalt you. She will honor you if you embrace her. So it's more than just the accumulation of information, but there's actually the, the treasuring and the, pre- and the uh, viewing it as something precious, something to be embraced. If you have the right kind of embrace, then you won't be uh, tempted by the wrong kind of embrace. And this comes up again and again as David and Solomon are, are uh, instilling wisdom in the li- or David, I'm sorry, David and Bathsheba are instilling wisdom in the life of a young man that uh, if you're embracing the right object, then you're not going to be seduced or led astray by the strange woman and uh, all of the wrong objects of our affection. So the ruler's lack of understanding is exhibited in the oppression he creates for the unjust gain that he craves. And again, the poetry, I think we talked about this last week, the poetry of this, the leader who is a great oppressor lacks understanding. This is in the, this is in the A portion of, of, the, uh, of the poetry, every verse with, with two, uh, two lines. So in the A portion, you have lacking understanding, but then we have he who hates unjust gain. And you start to think, well, those aren't exactly antonyms, are they? They're not exactly opposites. No, they're not purely opposites, but they truly are. And so we can take the other half and plug it in there. So we can say uh, the great oppressor lacks understanding and loves unjust gain, but the one who has understanding hates unjust gain and prolongs his days. You see how we do that? We fill out the poetry. We fill out the parallels uh, based upon the, uh, the items that are stated there. Anyway, good illustration of this is Isaiah 33.15. And uh, in a longer context, in Isaiah 33, I don't want to read the whole chapter, but... Um, Okay, woe to you, O destroyer. So it's not a happy chapter, okay? Israel is under judgment. This is the warning. And uh, asking for God's graciousness. Salvation in a time of distress. That's not born again coming to Jesus' salvation. We understand the nation's under discipline. They need to be delivered. Your spoil is gathered. Locusts are rushing about. The Lord is exalted, for he dwells on high. He has filled Zion with justice and righteousness. He will be the stability of your times. Oh, pray for that. Okay? I think we're long separated from that, and would that those days do return to our nation. A wealth of salvation, wisdom, and knowledge. The fear of the Lord is his treasure. And again, not to, not to grumble or lament over days gone by as if the good old days and, and woe is us, uh, but I think clearly we are past this stage in our nation's history, and can the Holy Spirit spark a revival? Can he put us back in, in, on, uh, on this track? Does he desire to? All right. Behold, the brave men cry in the streets. The ambassadors of peace weep bitter, bitterly. The highways are desolate. The traveler has ceased. You know, is this, uh, is this where we are? You know, we have uh, the gangs that run, reign supreme, and is it not safe to travel, and other things that are happening? Uh, broken the covenant, despised the cities, no regard for man. The land mourns and pines away. Remember, what is it that defiles a land? Uh, unrighteous bloodshed, demonism, uh, and, and fornication. Those are the things that physically defile the land when, when these things are tolerated, when these things are done in a culture. 
And so the land mourns and pines away. Now I will arise, says the Lord. I will be exalted. Now I will be lifted up. You have conceived chaff. You will give birth to stubble. Notice, just like in James and other passages, that there is a process that gets you there. And it's spoken of with a pregnancy metaphor, with conception and birth. All right? And so clearly we have uh, the process that's happening here. My breath will consume you like a fire. The peoples will be burned to lime like cut thorns which are burned in the fire. So that's not happy. Now we get to uh, the paragraph that addresses our unjust gain. You who are far away, hear what I have done. And you who are near, acknowledge my might. And I love the fact that we're hitting this this morning because we're going to have this near and far away contrast coming up in Ephesians chapter 2 with the Jews and the Gentiles. And the Gentiles are the ones that are far away. The Jews are the ones that are near. And yet both groups have to be made into one new creation, one new man in Christ. Sinners in Zion are terrified. Trembling has seized the godless. Who among us can live with the consuming fire? Who among us can live with continual burning? And so now the discipline's being applied. All of the rebellion, all of the reversionism, all of the cultural rot that is bringing about the divine judgment, is finally getting attention to where now they're, they're actually terrified. <laughs> it's not so fun uh, when the hand of God's judgment is hitting you and, and uh, you have to uh, deal with the consequences of your, of your actions. So yes, yeah, sinners in Zion are terrified, trembling has seized the godless. We're not there yet. Our culture, the sinners are still dominant. The sinners are still thrilled with what they're doing. They have no fear of God. They have no sense of any accountability. And it's just uh, flagrant, open defiance. So, pray for this to come as well. Let them become afraid. He who walks righteously speaks with sincerity, who rejects unjust gain. Or did I skip one? No, I did not. So here's the rhetorical question. Who among us can live with a consuming fire? Who among us can live with continual burning? So God's judgment is, is on the way. Who's going to survive on the other side? Are the sinners, the unrighteous, the wicked? As God's dealing with them? What's the, what's the other side of this story once the judgment is done? Who's going to be left to, to uh, come, out of the, come out of the fire here? Well, he answers that question in verse 15. He who walks righteously and speaks with sincerity. He who rejects unjust gain. So he's answering that rhetorical question. And, and keep in mind, why is this man walking righteously and speaking with sincerity, rejecting unjust gain? Why is he even in this circumstance? Why didn't he flee this wicked country years ago? Why is he still there watching all this judgment hit his culture? Because honestly, the answer is not always, well, just run away and find a better place. Sometimes the answer is stay where you are and be a witness. Stay where you are and be a testimony. Stay where you are, and even if you have to be like a Jeremiah and watch the whole thing crashing down around you, stay where God wants you to stay. So walking righteously and speaking with sincerity, rejecting unjust gain, shaking his hands so that they hold no bribe, who stops his ears from hearing about bloodshed and shuts his eyes from looking upon evil. He will dwell on the heights. His refuge will be the impregnable rock his bread will be given him. His water will be sure. So there's something to look forward to for the righteous. There's something to look forward to when God's justice accomplishes what needs to happen in a, in a decadent culture. 
the prophecy continues. Now it becomes truly prophetic. I think you've got typology there that this could be any righteous man in any generation, in any application of divine judgment, right? But then what's it foreshadowing? What's it looking forward to? The coming of, our, of uh, the king in his beauty. They will behold a far distant land. Your heart will meditate on terror. Where is he who counts? Where is he who weighs? Where is he who counts the towers? So they can look forward. This is the promise for Israel, remember. Israel is the one with the future kingdom. Israel is the one with the covenants and the promises and the future and the hope and the God and all the things that the Gentiles don't have. You will no longer see a fierce people, a people of unintelligible speech which no one comprehends, of a stammering tongue which no one understands. Some of these passages speak to uh, these prophecies that speak to um, the, the terror that, the, that Israel has at the hand of these Gentiles. Some of them are first advent in application. Some of them apply to the gift of tongues as was given in the early church so that they would be warned about the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. But some of these warning passages actually speak to Antichrist in the second advent. They speak to the, the, the destruction that they're going to be faced with at Armageddon. Either way. It's Israel that has the future. It's the Jewish people that have a millennial kingdom. No Gentile nation has uh, such a promise. All right, well, I'll let that go as well. Um, note how the righteous leader will actually hate the unjust gain. And it's, it's more than just a pass. It's more than just saying, no, thank you. It is actually hating it. Hating it that it's so common. Hating it that that they thought you would be vulnerable to it. Hating it in, uh, in even thinking about it, if in fact it did cross your mind, that you could get away with it. There's a lot of reasons for hate. And hate is valid when you hate what God hates. Hate is, uh, is a love application. If you don't hate what God hates, then you by definition have a different attitude than God does, which means you need to repent. That's the, uh, that's the basics of it, biblically speaking. And this goes well with uh, a couple of New Testament passages. This is uh, a snare for pastors. This is a snare for uh, the overseer in a local church. You want to make sure that uh, you don't have the, the money issue. The overseer must, this is Titus 1.7, the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine. You can see why each one of these character traits can be devastating to a local church. Not pugnacious not fond of sordid gain. That's the issue there, right? And that comes right out of the expression that you have in Proverbs 28. Not fond of sordid gain, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-control, holding fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he'll be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. Anyway, character traits for service in this office, the office of overseer in a local assembly, and uh, not for the giving of a spiritual gift. You, you get your gift at the moment of your salvation. But in the placement of an office as a ministry pursuit in, uh, in the church age. Anyway, not fond of sordid gain. If you find a guy and he's in it for the money and he's in it to just milk the... You know, religion can be a, a profitable racket, uh, but that's not what he's designed it for and that's not what the church age is all about. And I think we can appreciate that. Getting down here, verses 10 and 11... There are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision. All right, so look out. And this is what they had to deal with in the early church. They had to deal with what, what uh, 
the Apostle John called the synagogue of Satan in, uh, in Revelation 2 and 3. It, they're uh, empty talkers and deceivers, especially of the circumcision, who must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. And there it is again, the same principle. The issues there. All right. 1 Peter 5, 2. I'll start with verse 1. Peter says, I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder. He's not claiming to be the first pope or the authority of the Catholic Church or any, any of those things, right? He calls himself a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God among you. This is the imperative, okay? Now, keep in mind, you can be an elder and not be a shepherd. You can have one of the other spiritual gifts, but the primary function of the overseers is the shepherding function. And so the gifted shepherds are the ones that are best suited for this particular office. Shepherd the flock of God among you. This is a great text because it has elder, it has overseer, and it has shepherd. All three terms in the same context. Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, that's your overseer, not under compulsion, but voluntarily according to the will of God. Another uh, issue there related to uh, what is the will of God and does God like compulsion? No, God hates compulsion. He loves the cheerful giver. That's why you don't give grudgingly or under compulsion. God loves the cheerful giver. That's true for giving, that's true for shepherding, that's true for any function of the church age. If you're doing it grudgingly or under compulsion, there's no, there's no treasure in heaven for that. So voluntarily, according to the will of God. And not for sordid gain, but with eagerness. Again, the sordid gain is completely out of, out of place. Using your office, using your position to get, uh, to get money or to get girls or to get whatever. Okay? I don't know if you saw the headline this morning, but there was a pastor fired in Austin yesterday for uh, misbehavior. And uh, so here we have it. <laughs> Not for sordid gain, okay? But with eagerness. Nor yet as lording it. That's a fun verb because I think, I think Peter made it up. All right? Took, the, took the, uh, the idea of kurios for lord and made a verb out of it. Okay? You're not the lord, so don't, don't be lording. You have no business lording if you're not the lord. And um, over those allotted to your charge. My favorite phrase in this whole paragraph. Okay? Because we under shepherds are not the ones doing the allotting. Those allotted to your charge is, is to me, this verse lays out um, questions about church membership, questions about, well, where, where should I be? What church should I attend? Who's, uh, you know, who, the question is, it's not who has the best music ministry or who has a good singles program or who's got a great bowling league or, or uh, whatever else that people pick churches based on, okay? Who have I been allotted to? That's a big question. Allotted to your charge. Oh. Okay, so I'm a sheep. I've been allotted to the charge of an under-shepherd. I think I want to be in the flock that Jesus Christ has allotted me to. That, that seems to be the, the, the one criteria right there. Has Jesus allotted me to that shepherd? That's where I belong. Nor yet lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. I think this is, again, you can do a lot with this, and I hope that 
Emilio and other men that are training get these things because um, so much confusion arises when people blend the different concepts. You have elder terminology, okay? Elder's not a gift, and elder's not an office. Elder is a maturity status, and I want everybody to become an elder. Uh, everybody can grow from babe to adolescent to mature, and, and I want everybody to reach the mature status, okay? That's a maturity status. It's not an office. It's not a gift. Likewise, overseer is not a, is not a gift, and it's not a maturity status, although the character traits uh, show that this is a believer that's not a novice. Overseer is an office. Shepherd is a gift. The pastor teacher is a gift, along with evangelist and exhortation and, and all the, we've, we've studied, the 11 permanent spiritual gifts for the church age. But you, you take all three of these, the gift, the office, the maturity status, and you see these interrelated expressions of elder, overseer, pastor, teacher. And, and this, is the, this is, I think, when you, once you blend those, don't no, no, conflate them, but once you blend those and harmonize those and understand those, you, you really go a long way to resolving what has been a fight for 2,000 years for church governance and, and all of the debate about uh, the, the Presbyterian mode of church governance or the Episcopal mode of church governance or the, um, well, the, the congregational mode doesn't go back to the first century, but it, it's, uh, again, become a part of the tradition that we have the congregational mode of church governance. Well, what, what's the biblical mode? What is it? That, uh, that, and so I think that's why we had our, our classes and did what we did when we revised our church constitution in 2014. So that we have a plurality of elders, but we still have a single overseer, a single right-hand messenger accountable to Jesus Christ related to, uh, related to that. All right. Wow, that was a side trip. Um, but... What was I looking for here? Not for sordid gain, but with eagerness. There you go. All right? Sordid gain. And it'll ruin a church. It'll ruin a marriage. It'll ruin a, a nation. It'll ruin whatever organization whereby the leadership is, has the, the, the maladjusted priorities, where they're not serving the Lord on the appropriate biblical basis in the issues there. All right. Well, then, uh, we can get past verses 15 and 16 now. And let's get to... On uh, the guilt of human blood. This is an interesting verse, and it sits by itself. Um, some of these, uh, the, the poetry on some of these is not always as self-evident, uh, but I think this one, some people try to link it with verse 18. I, I think it's best to leave verse 17 isolated and then have 18, 19, 20 as a triplet, and uh, we'll be demonstrating that here as well. But let's look at it. A man who is laden with the guilt of human blood will be a fugitive until death, let no one support him. All right, so there you have it. Divine judgment sits heavy on the murderer, even should he escape human recompense. You know, the idea is, well, what if you flee? What if, you, what if there's no accountability? What if you get away with murder? David thought he'd gotten away with it for nine months during the pregnancy of, uh, of uh, that first child that Bathsheba carried. And he thought that no one knew and he thought that he was going to get away with it until the Lord sent Nathan to say, oh no, I, I know what you've done. You're the man. And, uh, and the issue is there. But laden with the guilt of human blood. That's a, that's a curious phrase to me. And I have to wonder the, uh, 
what God assigns. We, we saw some of those uh, confession psalms earlier where David said that his sin was ever before me and that his spirit had lost its joy. And he was begging that God would not only forgive his sin, but restore to him the joy of his salvation. What other effects happen with this prolonged carnality where you have to live with what you've done? And you're in the image of God and you've shed uh, innocent blood. What are the effects of that? And I think different passages speak to this in different ways. Um, even beyond the Old Testament, you even get into some of the pagan cultures have a, a worldview that says there is a price to pay for the murderer. I think it's kind of a curious episode when the Apostle Paul is on his way to Rome and uh, they have a shipwreck. They, they uh, get shelter here in Malta. And uh, the natives showed us extraordinary kindness for because of the rain that had set in, because of the cold, they kindled a fire and they received us all. Saying, okay, they're finally safe. They're finally safe from all the storms and all the risk of death and all of that. Now they're warmed up by the fire. It's like they, they can live happily ever after. But when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and laid them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened itself on his hand. Oh, who would have expected that, right? And when the natives saw the creature hanging from his hand, they began saying to one another, undoubtedly this man is a murderer. Now what, what perspective do they have on this? Who are these natives? And are they, do they have divine viewpoint? Are they believers? No. Okay, but they have a, a worldview. They have, I think it's fundamental to um, humanity that even a pagan has a concept that, that murder is bad, Right? Undoubtedly, this man is a murderer, and though he has been saved from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. Justice has not allowed him to live. Now, what do the pagans know about justice? And yet, here we have it, and it's thrown in our face seven days a week, 24-7. We've got uh, people that don't have the first clue about divine viewpoint, but they're screaming justice all the time. And they're screaming social justice, and they're screaming all kinds of other things. The idea of karma, the idea of payback, the idea of what goes around comes around, the idea, and, and so some of these are part of the stoicheia we deal with when we talk about the, the fundamental principles of, of the cosmos, but there are concepts and assumptions that are made, and, uh, and I think one of the biggest things is, and humanity does this, and thank God that they do, you know, we grumble about it enough, but... If you stop to think about it, whoever it is that's raging about all these perceived injustices anywhere, um, well, start there, okay? Start saying, well, what is it in your soul that is driving you to be so aggravated by this fallen world, <laughs> okay? Say, yes, I agree. The, the, the world is awful. We're, we're surrounded by sinners, and, and there's injustice everywhere, and 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 if you can turn that direction to something within them that's the image of God, they're bearing the image of God, that they're crying out for eternal justice, they may not even know it. They may actually hate Christianity and the Bible and your God and you and whatever else may happen, but in all of that grumbling about all these injustices everywhere, there's a, there's a little nugget, there's a little kernel of truth that says, okay, you're, you're admitting that there is a standard of absolute justice. Of course, if you're atheist, you have no grounds for that. On what basis is anything right and wrong? On what basis is anything just or unjust? 
Anyway, so these natives, undoubtedly this man is a murderer. You know, you could also think about the sailors that threw Job overboard so they could stop the, the storm, right? And you just think that, you know, there's, there's, there's a guilty party here. God is mad at him, so let's just make God happy and, and maybe, we, maybe we can live through the, through, the, through the night. Anyway, that's their assumption. However, Paul just shook the creature off into the fire and suffered no harm. <laughs> I mean, after all Paul had been through, something like a, a snake bite wasn't going to bother him. And they were expecting that he was about to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But after they had waited a long time and had seen nothing unusual happen to him, they changed their minds and began to say that he was a god. Okay. So you see how clearly these, these guys are just lost. And they don't understand, and they don't understand, and then when, they, when they're proven wrong about one thing they don't understand, then they jump to something else that's even more wrong. Okay? And so what a privilege that we have to actually offer up truth and real explanations instead of all of these, uh, these lost assumptions. Well, we understand the laws of divine establishment. We understand the principles of capital punishment. They are biblical, and they are for everybody's benefit, honestly. The, uh, the murderer and the murder victim and everything else. Genesis 9-6 is the commandment right, right out of... Uh, the, uh, the Noahic covenant, right? They're, they're done with the flood. They're getting off the ark. Um, God is uh, giving a promise to not flood the earth again. But he's also um, changing their diet. There's other things, adjustments that happen here after, uh, after the flood. Now we can eat animals. Thank God for that. We'll, uh, we'll be applying this doctrine uh, shortly. After uh, Bible class is over, we're going to go eat some tasty animals. That's uh, the people for the eating of tasty animals. That's the PETA organization that that I belong to. Um, only you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, the blood. The life is in the blood, and, and consuming blood is, is abhorrent in God's uh, uh, plan. Surely I will require your lifeblood. From every beast I will require it, from every man. From every man's brother I will require the life of man. Keep in mind, it is a requirement and specifically, the agent of the retribution is to be the kinsman. This is a, a part of the doctrine of kinsman redeemer. By every man's brother, I will require the life of man. And so if, uh, if I'm murdered in an Old Testament context such as this, then my brother, my nearest kinsman, will be expected to be the blood avenger. Okay? Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. It's, it's universal. It's based upon our humanity. It's based upon the image of God. Notice this is after the fall. The fall did not end the image of God's status that we have, even as sinners in Adam. The fallen humanity in Adam retains the image of God reality. It is not destroyed by Adam's original sin. So capital punishment is mandated uh, right from the very beginning. You also have Exodus 21, verses 12 through 14. He who strikes a man so that he dies shall surely be put to death. But if he did not lie in wait for him, but God let him fall into his hand, then I will appoint you a place to which he may flee. It may be it wasn't premeditated, it wasn't murder, he didn't intend to kill him, Accidents do happen. There are th unintended things can happen. And so uh, that needs to be investigated. That needs to be searched out. 
This is why under law there was provision for that. A city of refuge was, was provided so that he could have a fair trial, so that he would be safe from the kinsman redeemer until such time as the trial could be uh, appropriately adjudicated. So if he did not lie in wait for him, but God let him fall into his hand, then I will appoint you a place to which he may flee. If, however, a man acts presumptuously toward his neighbor, so as to kill him craftily, you are to take him even from my altar that he may die. There's no refuge, there's no get-out-of-jail-free card, there's no way, you're, you're safe nowhere on this earth, even if you're in the Holy of Holies clinging to the altar of God. You must die. He surely shall be put to death. Likewise, kidnapping, put to death. Cursing father or mother, put to death. There's a lot, of, a lot of things that get capital punishment, biblically speaking. And it's for the benefit of everybody. And usually they don't think about it as for the benefit of the murderer, but ask yourself, if he does get away with it, what will he be emboldened to do next? Okay? When you think about Cain, and you think about Lamech, and now he's, he, no, he's, he killed a man and he's boasting about it. And he's in open defiance about any, uh, any judgment that God may have for him. See, if you don't put that murderer down, then wh what's going to stop him from killing again? What's going to stop him from doing anything else? So it's for his sake, it's for the sake of society, it's for the sake of the victim and their grief, the family, the loved ones of, of the victim. All right. And so... Uh, the issues there. Anyway, the city of refuge is uh, is a great provision, and uh, Scripture deals with that. Obviously, we have New Testament applications as well that speak to capital punishment and the appropriate uh, application of this, and that's why we have government. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. So the design of government includes many things, including capital punishment. You get that down in verses 3 and 4. Verse 4 says, it is a minister of God to you for good. I mean, is it not a blessing to have laws? Is it not a blessing to have the administration of justice at, again, local, state, federal levels? Or would you rather live in total anarchy? Would you rather just live with, with tribal warfare and clans and and uh, every man does what's right in his own eyes. Okay? If you ever travel to some tribal areas of this planet, I don't recommend it. Okay? We're much better off if we function under the laws of divine establishment that includes volition, marriage, family, and nationalism. It's a minister of God to you for good, but if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. It's there to punish evil. It is a minister of God, an avenger, who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. We've done, we've done this doctrine before. The, the kinsman redeemer is also the blood of Andrews. The same language in the Hebrew. And this is the, the issue what happens here. And so um, that's why Jesus had to be the near kinsman to come and to identify with us and then to lay down his life in our place. Um, and the issue there. So the one question I can already hear coming is how does the brother apply it if the government applies it? Right? If it's the near kinsman in Genesis and it's the government in, in uh, Romans 13, then how, does this, how are both applied? How are both true? And I think you go back to the, 
to the chapters that deal with the uh, city of refuge, and you find out. You find out that he goes there, he's holding, uh, he's, he's safe from the, the kinsman redeemer, he's safe from the, the blood avenger until it's adjudicated. If he's guilty, then he's put to death. And the one to cast the first stone is that near kinsman, the, the blood redeemer, the one that is uh, hurt, damaged by the, uh, the loss of their loved one. They're the ones that cast the first stone. But only when government okays it, when the, when the, the trial is, is finished and the death warrant is signed, only then does the, the, the blood avenger have the blessing to cast the first stone. And, and not the only stone. He's the first stone, and the rest of the community is in agreement. I think that's an important lesson, too. I don't know. Um, it might not might not be the popular opinion, but... Um, there's value in uh, public executions. There's value in go ahead and make it pay-per-view or live stream it or just, you know, do something so people can actually see it. The community can see that justice is upheld, that, that righteous standards are maintained. I think there is uh, there's value in that. I also advocate, I've, I've seen the buttons in Huntsville, two buttons to execute a murderer in Huntsville, um, I have no issue with, with giving sovereignty over those buttons again to the kinsman redeemer if in fact you, uh, a family member who's watching through that one-way glass window uh, put the button right there. Let the family push it. If one, Again, once the, the sentence has been found and the judge has ordered the death and things like that. All right. Am I too bloodthirsty this morning? Mm-hmm. I can see the headlines now. A second pastor gets fired on... on a, <laughs> <laughs> rough day for pastors in Austin alright I think there's more work to be done on that and, and um, I'm, I'm still trying to find additional passages the idea of laden with guilt there are different terms for not only sin but the guilt of the sin and uh, expressions that do apply to the, the personal consequences of, of what happens and I think you'll find a lot of those in Psalm 51. you find a lot of those in, in David's uh, confessions in the various places. So I um, won't hit that today, but stay tuned. I wouldn't be shocked if that comes up in some, some future classes. All right, let's look at 18, 19, and 20. 18, 19, and 20. Now let's go through the triplet here. Because we're surrounded by a bunch of he-hoos. Got a bunch of he-hoos in these verses. He who walks blamelessly will be delivered. But he who is crooked will fall at once. We're dealing with, uh, with participles here, Hebrew participles that are describing uh, believers or unbelievers, people that are uh, accomplishing different activities. So he who walks blamelessly, he who is crooked, he who tills his land, there's a consequence there, he who tills his land will have plenty of food, but he who follows empty pursuits will have poverty and plenty. He who is faithful, but it's not phrased as a he-who. The, uh, the fifth one out of six breaks the pattern. And it breaks the pattern by not using a participle, by, by changing in such a startling way, a faithful man will abound with blessings. And then it goes back to the he-who for the sixth uh, part of this triplet of verses here. But he who makes haste to be rich will not go unpunished. So, Verse 18, verse 19, verse 20, each of these three verses has an A and a B. 
Uh, each of the A's and the B's has a he-who. Until you get to 20A, the fifth one out of the six he-whos is missing the he-who. Okay? The fifth one. And so that grabs the attention. It, it's, it's, um, it's deliberate. It's designed this way. This is where, um, you know, with, with poetry, when, when, when what you're expecting doesn't happen, when, and, and it's, of course, our English poetry is different, but, you know, roses are red, violets are blue. You're expecting something there because we have, our, our poetry tends to be rhyming, right? And so I want to have another clause, and I want to have something that rhymes with blue, okay? And if I don't have something that rhymes with blue, it, you know, if I switch it to purple for some reason, okay, then... I just broke the whole thing up, right? The whole thing just blew up, and then you look at me and say, what a, what a stupid poem, okay? Or you start to say, wait a minute, maybe there's a, there's a method to the madness. Maybe, maybe it's not a stupid poem. Maybe it was intentional, it was designed so that what we were expecting is not what we were given. Instead, it's this surprise. It's this, ah, wait a minute. And then that becomes center stage. That becomes the, the centerpiece, and when we see a faithful man will abound with blessings, we realize that the, the cent centrality of this triplet is centered on a faithful man. You go back and you say, look at this. All, the whole, all uh, three verses are dealing with a faithful man. He who walks blamelessly, you know who that is? It's a faithful man. It's he who walks blamelessly, and he will be delivered. And then, uh, but he who is crooked, you know who that is? That's the not faithful man, okay? He who tills his land, he's faithful. You say, well, what's faithful about farming? Faithful in spiritual things, faithful in earthly things, in your bios life, in your, in your zoe life. Faithfulness encompasses all of it. And so even, uh, even a secular issue like hard work and, and, um, and the sluggard, he who follows empty pursuits. Didn't have enough time to work because you were too busy, um, whatever. Frittering your day away with whatever. Okay? Maybe you shouldn't have played 40 Scrabble tournaments last year. You would have, you know. If, if, and, and maybe there's nothing intensely wrong with the thing that you're doing, but if it's keeping you from providing for your family, if it's, and obviously priorities, what's happening here? Nothing wrong with an empty pursuit, but if it's keeping you from feeding your family... I think you realize the proportion is, uh, is out of whack. So, uh, and, and this is just a personal application. Everybody has to, that's why I picked Scrabble, so I, I'm not picking on your hobbies. Whatever, whatever you do for your hobby, that's fine between you and the Lord. I picked Scrabble so that I could just confess my own, uh, and I did not do 40 tournaments <laughs> in any year. Poverty in plenty. And I, and I love the... Uh, Here's, again, more poetry where you have plenty and plenty that are put in the A part and the B part. Do you want food in plenty or do you want poverty in plenty? You're going to have plenty either way. Following these empty pursuits. What are we really doing? But so that we have faithfulness. Faithfulness in, uh, in uh, temporal life pursuits. Faithfulness in the workplace. Faithfulness in, uh, in, uh, in work. Putting food on the table. And then likewise, 20, A and B, a faithful man will abound with blessings, but he who makes haste to be rich will not go unpunished. So the issue here is faithfulness. 
All three verses contrast the believer's right to walk, uh, the believer's right walk, from the sad alternative, the right walk, blameless. The sad alternative, crooked. Okay? And, and remember, any believer can commit any sin. Any believer can abandon the, the, uh, the blameless walk for the crooked walk. Don't think for a minute that this is a description of believers versus unbelievers. Not for a minute. Okay? This is what happens when believers go carnal. This is what happens when you walk in darkness instead of walking in the light. The term amuna, the Hebrew amuna, is, uh, is our expression for faithful here in, uh, in verse 20. Um, Strong's number is 530. It's used 49 times. It's part of a larger family that's, that's really worth getting to know. Uh, it, it, fundamentally, it sits along with batach, which we had done a study on a couple months back. Um, some of these are Hebrew uh, expressions that, that fundamentally apply to what does it mean to believe, what does it mean to trust, what does it mean to, to be faithful. Okay, And uh, the term for faithfulness, the term for faithful, as we have it here. The, um, the expectation is cognate to the, even the, uh, the benediction when you say amen. When you, when, you, when you respond with amen, you are testifying to the faithfulness of something, the faithfulness of a statement or the faithfulness of your faith in, in trusting in God to get it done. And you say, yes, God is faithful. Yes, this is certain to occur. Yes, I agree. All of the things that you are saying when you amen something, it's, it's locked into the vocabulary here with amuna. Applies to faith, faithful, faithfully, faithfulness all of which are English expressions coming out of Imuna. Um, see if we can hit these and then we'll let you go. Because uh, it it's a dominant thing, and, and clearly Habakkuk 2.4, how many times does this get quoted in the New Testament? The just shall live by faith, right? Behold, as for the proud one, his soul is not right within him, but the righteous will live by his faith. There's a whole lot more to this. And in Habakkuk, Breaks my heart. He's a minor prophet and he's ignored, <laughs> sadly. But how profound is the truth that he's communicating here in this book? I will stand on my guard post and station myself on the rampart. I will keep watch to see what he will speak to me. This is fervent, effectual prayer. This is diligence to not only be on the alert, but then to be ready to be corrected when the rebuke comes. I will keep watch to see what he will speak to me and how I may reply when I am reproved. That's when you know you're positive to doctrine, when you, when you just crave it and, and whatever God teaches, even the hard-hitting stuff that smacks you left and right, you say, thank you, Lord, I needed that. Same thing with prayer re uh, requests and the responses to prayer. Then the Lord answered me and said, record the vision, inscribe it on tablets, that the one who reads it may run. <laughs> so, uh, Habakkuk has a message here of uh, it's bad news, and when you read it, you run. For the vision is yet for the appointed time. It hastens towards the goal. It will not fail. Though it tarries, wait for it, for it will certainly come. It will not delay. And we have this. Jesus talked about this. He says, when you see the, the uh, abomination of desolation, then run. Don't go back inside the house. Don't go back for a coat you forgot. Run. As soon as you see it, run. Run as fast as you can immediately. And if you're slow, you're not going to make it. If you're pregnant, you may have a hard time. Pregnant women don't run so fast. 
Okay? And, uh, and that. Run. But here's the thing. It, it tarries. And then lazy humans think, oh, it's far off. It's not going to happen. And, they, and, and lazy humans start thinking that there's no accountability. Though it tarries, wait for it. Yet people today mocking the rapture because it's been 2,000 years. Don't mock the rapture. Be ready for it. Act as if it's today. Behold as for the proud one. And I think in context, being maladjusted to the imminent judgment that's, that's on the way, or really any application of pride. As for the proud one, his soul is not right within him. Does that not also agree with what I was bringing up a minute ago, talking about what is the personal damage we're doing in our own sin? The proud one, how does he de destroy his soul with his pride? How long has he been prideful to get the label, the proud one? <laughs> okay, you know, that's more than just uh, one, one shortcoming, or you sin a couple times. This is a consistent, uh, persistent sin pattern that's so characteristic of this believer's life, he can be called the proud one. And, when, and having that label is not just a stigma, it, it reflects upon the fact his soul is not right within him. How much soul damage do you do in the process? Say, man, he's, he's just not right. Okay, his soul is not right. But the righteous will live by his amuna, faith, faithfulness. The righteous will live by his amuna. So this is important. And we want to understand the righteous man, the faithful man. And uh, this is what we'll do when we'll come back next week. Because I want to look at all of these in Psalm 89. The, 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 the best psalm in all of the Bible centering on the, the coming of Christ, the coming son of David, God's faithfulness to David. He will not lie to David. And amuna is used seven times in, in the same psalm. All speaking to faithfulness. And I think it's important for us. And then some of our other... Uh, favorite verses here too. Uh, Mercies are renewed every morning. Great is your faithfulness. That's Amuna. You know a lot of Amuna verses, even if you don't think you know Amuna verses. You know a lot of Amuna verses because uh, uh, of these faith and faithfulness applications. So we'll pick up here next week, Lord willing, and rapture pending. If the trumpet does sound, then we're done. Well, we don't have to come back, and I'm not going to keep teaching Proverbs. We're going to have a much better teacher once we are uh, face to face with Jesus Christ. All right. Thank you, Father, for this day. Thank you for truth. Thank you for the privilege and blessing that we have to assemble together. And for these Proverbs, Father, most of these just preach themselves. They're so self-evident and obvious. Father, I pray that we understand what it is that you're teaching us through these, through these verses. I pray that we understand the necessity to keep short accounts and to confess our sins, uh, to, not, uh, to not hide them, to not deny them, but to confess and forsake them so that we aren't damaged, our souls aren't damaged in the process. And Father, I pray too that we uh, appreciate the, uh, all of these principles that, uh, that you're showing us here. So continue to work, continue to open our eyes. So long as you keep us here, Father, there's more to learn, there's more to grow. If there's anybody in, in our midst that thinks they've learned it all and they've learned enough or thinks that they can uh, stop taking in Bible doctrine, I pray that on this day that you would convict them to realize that is not the case. There's more to learn, there's more to grow. We're still here. And, uh, and I pray that we keep humble in that regard as well. So, Father, I give you the praise and the glory, thanking you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.